So in this series, we've talked about a number of reasons why people say, I don't like church. The first reason is they say, I don't understand it. You know, it's too complicated, all the standing up, the sitting down, the prayers. It's just a little bit odd to me. Some people say, I don't like church because it's too judgmental. You know, those people are always looking down on me. Some people say, I don't like church because they want my money. You know, like my grandfather Carl always said to my dad, they're, they're after your money, Craig. Don't let them get it. Some people say, I don't like church, like Mr. Ricardo said last week, because I don't want to change, you know? If I stay home, then I won't feel pressured to be any different. And the last reason people say, I don't like church, is because I have been hurt by the church. And we can all identify with this to some extent. You know, easily, my personally, my deepest hurts that continue to cause me to walk with a limp have to do with the body. Christ. Not necessarily the church as an institution, but it has to do with being hurt by Christians. You know, with the average person, we're careful to put our best foot forward, right? If you're just dealing with a client, you're dealing with a case, you're dealing with a, a person that you don't know very well, a neighbor, you're going to be very particular with how you interact with them, right? You're going to be very careful, very cautious, because you want them to perceive you the right way. But in church, we're more likely to feel safe. And to let our guard down. I'm more likely to let you get to know the real me. Not just the managed me. And so I'm vulnerable. And before we see it coming, someone starts to point a finger at the parts of me it's too late to conceal. You know what I'm talking about. You ever gotten to know somebody? You've gotten close. You've let down your guard. You've been the real you. And then before you know it, start wagging their finger. And you know it's too late. I can't cover up. I can't conceal. They've already seen too much. It's too late. It'd be like coming to church without your makeup on, ladies. Could you, would you imagine? That'd be like a nightmare, wouldn't it? Without your makeup on. It's too late to go back. But because we've been honest and we've been vulnerable, their words, they cut deep. And the guilt... Fear are unavoidable. Maybe they're right. Especially if it comes from a figure of authority, like a pastor, and he said something about you and it cut deep. With physical hurts, we immediately seek help, right? Go to the doctor. But emotional and spiritual hurts seem to engender a response unlike any other wound. Because sadly, when we're shot by people in the church, we tend to focus on the shooter, not the healer. Now, you could immediately recall, if I were to ask you, and I'm not going to, if I were to ask you about someone you would like to put on a dartboard that you would keep in your basement. Got somebody in mind? No names, please. <laughs> and if you're sitting next to them, just don't, don't do any elbowing. But we all have somebody that we'd like to have on a dartboard, right? We can throw darts... Get them right in the noggin, you know? Get them back. But we have to keep it in the basement. Even at 37, I can think of several times I've offended people to the point where I'm probably dartboard worthy. So why do we keep coming back for more, huh? Why do we keep on coming back to the church? Are we simply gluttons for punishment? Well, I'll tell you the reason I keep coming back. 
And I will continue to come back to church because I need two things. I need fellowship and I need partnership. Fellowship reinforces our shared values like devotion, you know. Where else but church are you going to have people saying, not my will, God, but thy will, your will. Nowhere else. Where else are you going to find charity? You know, I'm not reserving my stuff like we talked about two weeks ago. I'm leveraging your stuff, God, and I'm willing to share. Where else are you going to find that? Where else are you going to find temperance, you know, where we say the singular pursuit of satisfaction is not going to satisfy? Where else are you going to find that? You're not going to find it in the media. You're not going to find it in commercials. They say, live it up. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Buy that new thing. Borrow money to satisfy yourself. But in church, we know that you're not going to be satisfied. So we need fellowship. And we need partnership. You know, partnership informs a shared direction. The bottom line is you and I, we take our cue from those who are around you. You take your cue from those around you, and so do your kids. So I want to have regular, unhurried times with people who share my values. And while we're together, I might pick up tips and tricks of the trade, especially with y'all. I mean, if I, if I sit down and have a conversation or a cup of coffee with you, and I ask you, Give me some advice about a particular situation. You've got a treasure trove of experiences that you can pull from and you can share with me. Where else am I going to get that? So if we're concerned that the risk is worth it, and it's risky to come to church, it can be risky. How can we help others who have been hurt by Christians to give it one more try? Because there are people who've been hurt by the church, and they've been hurt deeply. So how can we convince them to give it one more try? This, the art of this kind of persuasion begins with belief and is rooted in honesty. Let me explain. You've got to believe that it's what's best for them to come to church. Otherwise, your invitation is going to be lacking enthusiasm. Or you're just not going to invite. If, you don't, if you're not convinced that the person you're sharing with, the person you're inviting to church, they'd be better off coming then your invitation is going to fall flat. So once you're convinced of that, though, it's time to be honest. Especially if you know this person has been hurt by the church. So firstly, you can say this. You can say, the church has never been perfect. I'm not perfect. The church isn't perfect. The church has never been perfect. Acts 6, verse 1 says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So they were upset. Somebody was, in, I don't even know who was in charge of the program, but somebody had dropped the ball, and they were favoring the Hebrew widows over the Greek-speaking widows, and the Greek-speaking Christians were mad. They were upset. The old saying goes that when the cat is away... Mice come out of life, right? So the apostles would never have knowingly endorsed this practice. But while they are rightly distracted with other work, I mean, they say later on, hey, we can't just wait tables. We're supposed to minister the word of God. They're rightly distracted with other work. The oversight of this crucial piece falls into the hands of partisan church members. That's an emotionally charged word right now, partisan. It just means that you're biased, that you lean in one particular 
direction. And likely no one intended to be biased in the distribution of needed supplies. Can you imagine the pressure? These widows are in need, and they're coming and asking for help. But have you ever tried to say no to Grandma without help? Have you ever tried to say no to Mama without help? Recently, while delivering food for fish, I came upon a questionable situation. There was a lady um, who just happened to always be out when we came to deliver her food, but there was always some kind of shady-looking person there to receive food, saying, oh, she's, she's just out. She's, she's just in an appointment. And so I was a little bit suspicious, but I felt really uncomfortable because this woman's, like, expecting me to hand her the food. So I did what you've all done. What do you think I did? I called my supervisor, right? Now, she wasn't really my supervisor. But I just said, hey, you know, let me, let me call my supervisor and, and, and check with her. So after I called Karen on the phone, I had a quick conversation. She agreed. I went back and said, I'm so sorry. But my supervisor said that I'll have to, you'll have to make an appointment when, when, when Mrs. So-and-so is actually going to be physically here. So I think that's what's happening. In this situation, what was missing was leadership. Someone to oversee the program and provide needed support in order to keep it on track. I mean, let's be honest, as volunteers, sometimes we believe that good intentions are good enough. So I think that, that's what was happening. It was nothing evil. It was nothing sinister. It was just a lack of leadership. Here's a second example of the church being imperfect. This one's a little bit more sinister. 1 Corinthians 11, 17-22 says this, But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if you do more harm than good when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Do you not have your own homes for eating and drinking, or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor. What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. Now, we've discussed this situation before. This is what happens when you have management, but not leadership. You ever been in a situation like that? You've got a really good manager. They've got it all lined out. They've got all the procedures and policies. They can quote from the manual, but no leadership. Someone has scheduled and planned this meal, right? Maybe they had a sign-up sheet. Like we have sign-up sheets. Someone brought plates and cups. Someone decorated the fellowship hall. But when people arrived, what was an opportunity to reflect their unity in Christ? A meal. What an opportunity. Instead, it smelled much like the world around them. They needed a spirit-filled leader to gently and firmly direct the activity and artfully admonish those whose Behavior threatened to tarnish the good name of the church in Corinth. So they needed somebody to step in to that situation and say, I'm glad that you brought the plates and cups. I'm glad that somebody set the table. I'm glad that we've got the fellowship hall reserved and prepared. But this is not right. This bias that's being showed, these poor people starving, these rich people feasting, this is not reflective of Christ. I had a friend who went on a family vacation. Prior to departure, it was announced that each nuclear family would provide their own food. And 
after arriving, it was clear that they meant it. Sharing was not on the menu. And each group's eats were clearly delineated in the refrigerator. I'll be eating my steak while you're eating your hot dogs. Such was the arrangement in this family vacation. And at the church in Corinth, it likely made sense from one perspective that the ones who contributed were the ones who partook. But the kingdom of God plays by different rules than we do. So they were just lacking leadership in this situation to say, this is not honoring to God. So the church has never been perfect. Anybody in here perfect? Bill? No? Just, just a little shy there. Close. Close. Number two, we'd say, you know what, friend? People are messy. The church has never been perfect, and it's because people are messy. Philippians 4, 2. Now I appeal to Yodia and Sintik. Jack, correct me if that's wrong. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. So there are these two women in the church, and they're disagreeing with one another. And they refuse to settle it on their own. Paul has to write in a letter because he's heard about it. Please settle your disagreement. I can remember when I was young, my dad made a mistake. He decided to help out with our church program with the youth, with the kids. And it, I don't remember this specifically, but my mom does. There was one of the children that was acting up. It wasn't me that time. Um, but one of the kids was acting up, and uh, my dad decided that he needed to address it. And so he told him to settle down and stop acting up. Well, um, the mother of this child did not like that. And so began a series of conversations, not with my father, but about my father. And as a result, we ended up going to a different church. Isn't that sad? Why are we so uncomfortable with settling our disagreements? I'll tell you why, because it seems much safer to clearly state our position least to ourselves, and stick to it, right? We don't want to get into the mess. And if they want to talk about it, they can make the first move. I mean, we humans can go from mature to messy in an instant, right? Sane, reasonable, intelligent adults. But if you talk about my kid... I'll be in the principal's office in a heartbeat, and I'll be giving you the tongue lashing of your life. I remember when I was in school, um, I had said the wrong thing to a kid in my class, and he got really upset about it. And uh, his mom came in because she had to to talk to the principal. And I just remember her head shaking, her hair flapping, and she said to the principal, if you feel froggy, you just go ahead and jump. And that's all I remember. I think she was like, he was talking about suspension. But isn't that how we are? We go from mature to messy in an instant. Here's why. Mark 2.17 says, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I remember a church camp when I was on a public relations team. There was this church, and I won't say which one, but their kids would come to camp. And we always knew which ones, which church they were from because they were the rowdiest, worst behaved kids at camp. I 
And we say, oh, we know where those kids came from. We can just tell. But the reason why is because their church was extremely evangelistic. And they were always reaching out to people who needed to be in church. And consequently, when we looked at their youth group, we said, man, their youth group is not like any of the other youth groups. And that's because the other youth groups were mostly church kids. But that's what God intended with the church, is that it's full of sick people. And what do you expect sick people to have? Sickness, but what do you expect them to display? Hmm? <laughs> symptoms, right? You expect sick people to have symptoms. You expect sick people to display evidence that they are sick. But in church, we want people to have been inoculated with sin. Catch what I mean there? You had that before, and now you're over it, right? I mean, you struggled with sin before, but you're over it, right? We, we, we don't want sinners. We want people who've been inoculated with sin. And they're over it. They don't struggle with it anymore. Or like a popular preacher said, you know, being a Christian is not about being sinless. But you sin less and less and less. Sadly, that's not been my experience. Maybe it's yours. <laughs> So you're a Christian now, you shouldn't struggle with it anymore, or at least wait until you get home to display the symptoms, please. You know, keep your symptoms under wraps, keep them suppressed at least until you walk out the door, please. That's the way we think about it. So if you've been at church long enough, you've got some scars like I've got some scars. But if we choose to nurse our victimhood rather than treat our wounds, they can become spiritually life. A story is told about a visit Robert E. Lee, General Robert E. Lee, paid to a Kentucky home where a bitter and angry woman pointed to what was left of a magnificent tree in her house. In front of her house, not in her house. That would have been a Christmas tree. She was upset that Union artillery fire had ruined the shape and beauty of the tree. She wanted General Lee to share her anger. She wanted the great leader to condemn the Yankees, which I am. And sympathized with her, Lee paused and quietly said, Cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. Lee knew that the ravaged tree would only be a constant reminder of her victimhood. He wisely suggested that the, remain, the reminder be cut out so she could get on with her life. That tree would never be the same, and her bitterness would not change that fact. I, too, have often chosen to turn scarred remnants in my own heart into monuments that perpetually... Remind me all over again. I've been hurt. You want to talk about church? I'll talk about church. I hate church. I don't want anything to do with church. I don't want anything to do with Christians. They're all hypocrites. You ever heard this? Because they're nursing their wounds. They're nursing that hurt. That bitterness is growing. But also their opportunity for redemption. Their hope is fading. For many of us, it's time to follow the words of General Lee. Let's cut it down, my dear brothers and sisters, and forget it. I have to tell this too. My parents have had a number of disappointing experiences at the church. But they still go. There was a youth leader at their church, and he was convicted of crimes involving students. It was a big deal. Good-sized church. And my parents felt, because they knew him personally... In fact, my brother was one of the, the students that was at risk 
not involved but at risk, they continue to stay in touch with him. They continue to write to him while he's in prison, while he's incarcerated. To this day, my dad still provides accountability and makes contact with this gentleman. But when the church members who were the victim's parents found out, you can just imagine what happened. Once again, a series of conversations began that was not with my parents, but about my parents. And consequently, they decided to go to another church. Now, praise God, a couple years later, they're back at that church. That's where a lot of their friends are. But sadly, those families, they're not moving on. They're still nursing that bitterness, nursing that anger. And I'm not judging them. I can't even imagine. I couldn't even begin to imagine. But that's what happens when you don't choose to allow God to heal you and move forward. Is you hurt and you hurt others. But my parents have not given up. They have not chosen to harbor Bitterness. And this brings us to the answer when we are hurt by the church. Because people are messy. The church is not, has never been perfect, but the answer is love. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, When we are utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus didn't love us after we straightened up. And that's what we want to do, right? You can come in for one Sunday, but I expect those symptoms to go away. I expect you to straighten up, dress better, and bring some money next week. Right? That's what we want from people. But Jesus didn't love us after we straightened up. He loved us before. In other words, he expressed his love for us regardless of our future response. He talked about setting the bar high. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He loved us regardless of our future response. What if we could pray and ask God to empower us to display this kind of love? If Christians would choose to be loving regardless of the response, this could start a revolution in our community. It's how the early church originally grew. In pagan Rome, and the plague came, and the pagan priests fled with all the money they could grab, and the Christians stayed. The Christians served. The Christians became infected. The Christians died. And the fame Christ grew. The influence spread. What if we could choose to be loving regardless of how people treat us? Inside the church and outside the church. Start a revolution. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Well, I'm going to stop and just share personally for a moment. This is not easy. I mean, when we've been hurt or, or when we've hurt other people, and you do your best to apologize, and you try to mend the fences, but you can only do so much. Because like we said in Sunday school this morning, it takes two to tango. And I'll be honest, there's probably been times when I've been the offended one, and I have paid lip service to forgiveness. 
Maybe I've forgiven to an extent, but I'm not willing to continue the relationship. And I've had that happen to me. Where I'm willing, I'm hoping that they're willing to continue the relationship, and they're just not. And they're not going to be. But how am I going to respond to that? How are you going to respond to that? Are we going to put their picture on a dartboard? Please say yes. No, we're not going to do that. We're being faithful to Jesus and to his example. Colossians 3, 12 through 15 says, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So in this passage, he says, clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves. It's like God's giving us a choice of wardrobe. Don't we love that? Choices. Now, I don't know what to do with those. You know, I'm the kind of person that I come out with an outfit and say, how about this? And she says, mm -mm. <laughs> And I go back and I get another, how about this? Mm -mm. No. Just not getting the date. Well, I love this story that John Maxwell tells. He says his wife, Margaret, is so intuitive with, with clothes that he'll go in and he'll pick out an outfit and come out and she'll say, John, no, that's, that's not right. Something in the ensemble is off. So she'll go pick out an entire outfit for him and then he'll wear it to speak and then he'll come back and he'll hang it up just the way it was in the closet. And then he'll, he'll be so proud of himself the next time he goes to speak, he'll go into the closet, put on the outfit that's already been set aside and walk out and then Margaret says, You've already worn that. <laughs> so, I'm not very good at wardrobe, but God gives us a choice of wardrobe. One set of clothing is comfortable and natural. And this is what it's like. Here's our clothing. We love those who love us. Right? You love me, I love you. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, pretty crisp, pretty clean. We respond kindly to those who are kind to us. And that's pretty natural, right? You're nice to me, I'm nice to you. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. We forgive people who've asked for it. Maybe with a bit of groveling, right? I'll forgive you if you ask for it and if you make me convinced that you're sorry. But the other garments are not natural, but supernatural. There's a bit more padding to absorb the friction caused by interacting with sick people. Like me. There's a little more padding in these clothes. We love before we are loved. We respond to unkindness with kindness. We forgive those who have not asked for it and probably never will. Talk about something hard. You ever had to forgive somebody who wasn't sorry? I have. And it didn't happen overnight. It was a process. But the result choosing to be clothed as God recommends, as God requires, is peace and harmony. So the bottom line today, when it comes to the church, because we've been hurt by the church, we've been hurt by Christians, people are the problem, right? G.K. Chesterton, famous philosopher, theologian, famously said in response to a woman who was just complaining and bemoaning and saying, what's wrong with the world? You ever ask that? You ask that when you turn on the news? What's wrong with the world today? 
What's wrong with these people, with those people? And G.K. Chesterton responded, Riley. He said, Madeline, I am the problem. I'm the problem. Now, what if we were willing to take that kind of attitude? Take personal responsibility. Because people are the problem. But Christ is the solution. And even though you've been hurt by the church, even though I've been hurt by the church, even though my parents have been hurt by the church, don't give up on it. Because the alternative is to do your best to live life, right? To just get by and do your best with no fellowship, with no partnership. Talk about a lonely road. So even though we've been hurt by the church, and I'll, I'll tell you this, I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt. But when I think about myself, when I think about my family, when I think about a future without fellowship, a future without partnership, it looks pretty bleak. And so even though I have been, and I probably, well, I will be hurt again, I'm going to keep leaning in. I'm going to keep attending. I'm going to keep putting my family in a position where they can encounter Christ and they can have a better present and a better future. Pray with me. God, we're so grateful for you and we're so grateful for your church and with all of its warts, with all of its problems, with all of its symptoms, God, we're not inoculated people who are over sin. We still sin. We still screw up. We still make messes. So God, we're just crying out to you uh, to continue to use us, us broken tools, us um, empty vessels um, in order to, to do your will and, and to be a welcoming, inviting force. And so, God, we know there are so many people who say they don't like church and they've got lots of valid reasons, but I pray that you would give us the privilege and the opportunity to begin to change somebody's mind. One conversation, one smile, one hug, one song at a time. It's in Jesus' name I pray.